sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books around you here are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right, uh, along with managing domestic duties, serves as a reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these uh, source books. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Uh, so it, it seems that our last show, I got some messages about it, the uh, opening bit. Uh, people found it... Uh, Somewhat, uh... Awkward, probably. People don't like to hear other people. People they've come to know. At odds. At, at odds, yes. I wouldn't say fighting. I wasn't fighting. No, I, I wouldn't say you were fighting. It takes two to fight. Oh, no. And because it was all me. No, I, I'm not saying that. I do understand my part in it. and That I had done something you uh, found upsetting and you were... Uh, uh, what you were doing, refusing to record last time, that you had your reasons, it so... It just uh, seems monstrous. Okay, so you uh, do want to discuss this for our listeners. I'm not saying you're a monster, but it's like a thing a monster would do. Uh, uh, it's an improvement on murderer, I guess. That was said in the heat of the moment, and you know it. Uh, I just think monster and murderer are rather extreme language for... Discussing a rug? Do you? Well, I I know you don't like the rug, and I'm considering moving it out of the library. It doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't even matter if you get rid of it. It's that you had it made. The idea would even come to you. I guess you really don't understand. I guess it doesn't seem the least bit barbaric to you. Honestly, I actually thought seeing the rug would bring you a little peace of mind in a way. That's how I felt when the taxidermist brought you it over. You skinned him! I did not. The taxidermist did. And lots of people have bear skin rugs. He said he made several just this year. It's not just any bear. And you know it. No, it's the bear that was causing you unending grief, raiding your hives. I thought you'd be happy. I know why you were melting silver. You made silver bullets. And the Ukrainians, that old woman, they were all a part of it. It's like one of your horror stories. No. Well, I, maybe a little the way you're imagining things. <laughs> imagining things. Uh, anyway, uh, episode 63, Medusa and the Gorgons. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes. I'll have more on the world of our Patreon supporters at the end of our show.
2,000 years, Megera the Gorgon had kept her evil peace. But now this strange, unearthly creature returns to petrify every human being who crosses her path. With a terrifying realism, she comes to life and brings death to all those who look upon her face. Well, unfortunately, the realism of this 1964 Hammer film, The Gorgon, didn't quite live up to the hype. The Gorgon in question, representing the mythic breed to which Medusa belongs, sports a head full of rubber dime store snakes and reptilian makeup that would have worked better at a Mardi Gras party. Mercifully, she only appears in the last minutes of the film, which takes place in a 19th century German town plagued by mysterious nocturnal attacks, leaving petrified corpses everywhere. And there's something about the spirit of an ancient Gorgon possibly being at fault, uh, Medusa's sister, to be precise. Beyond the uh, shabby costume, the production is actually quite handsomely mounted, lots of atmosphere, good pacing, and nicely showcases the talents of both Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. As uh, Lee commented in an interview looking back on the film, The only thing wrong with the Gorgon is the Gorgon. But it was a minor film, nothing like the next movie to depict a Gorgon. Medusa herself presented in a loose adaptation of the actual Greek myth, 1981's clash of the titans the good the evil this one uh, relatively recently remade in 2010 featured prestige casting with uh, Laurence Olivier and Maggie Smith playing Greek gods but more importantly it was a final hurrah in the career of stop-motion wizard Ray Harryhausen released after George Lucas's ILM animators were already making use of the uh, much more uh, fluid go motion technique the film succeeded more as a nostalgic throwback to Harryhausen's uh, work of the 1960s. But for decades, it was the only big screen representation of Medusa herself and did much for the figure's pop culture appeal. Harryhausen's uh, reimagining of Medusa gave her the body of a snake, including a rattler's tail, uh, features never found in the myths, and equipped her with uh, additional offensive capabilities, a, a bow and arrow for cases when uh, a petrifying gaze uh, simply wouldn't do. Design choices repeated in the remake and now completely fixed in the popular consciousness. Despite all the warm, nostalgic feelings the film generated, there were things uh, one might quibble about. For instance, hard to have a clash with only one titan in the film. Most of the gods are actually Olympians, the ones who came after the Titans, with the uh, possible exception of Maggie Smith's character, Thetis, who's uh, sometimes classed as a Titan. The uh, satyr-like figure Calibos isn't a Greek name or figure, but probably an adaptation of the half-human Caliban from Shakespeare's The Tempest. And Harryhausen's Hellhound only has two heads rather than the traditional three because, well, two's easier to animate. And uh, Perseus wouldn't be riding Pegasus on his mission to slay Medusa, as the creature is only born once this deed's been accomplished. And uh, the Kraken is a Scandinavian creature, not Greek, though there is a sea monster in some versions of the 
Medusa myth. And defeat the Kraken. Clash of the Titans. The combat. The courage. The splendor. The spectacle. 2010 was a big cinematic year for Medusa. Not only was there the remake of Titans, but the first Percy Jackson film gave the kids a Medusa in modern and uh, uncharacteristically attractive guise as she was played by Uma Thurman. Such beautiful hair. I once had hair like that. While the uh, Jackson film went on to spawn more mythology updates for the young adult set, the Clash reboot received mostly lukewarm reviews and certainly wasn't helped by the last-minute post-production rejiggering, a sort of ham-fisted 2D to 3D post-production conversion, which was intended to reproduce Avatar success, which it had with True 3D the previous year. Even in 2D screenings, many just found the production dull, despite the exuberant onslaught of CG effects. Maybe it just failed to capitalize on the nostalgia, which was probably the bread and butter of the 1981 production to begin with. One nostalgic aspect the uh, remake refused to uh, wholeheartedly embrace was the uh, ridiculous mechanical owl from the original, uh, Bubo. It's uh, sent to the story's hero, Perseus, by Athena, who, in all fairness, was associated with the owl, if not a whimsical robotic one. It's supposedly there to aid Perseus in his quest, but it seems the real purpose of the character was likely to appeal to fans of R2-D2 from Star Wars, as you can hear in the scene in which the owl first appears. Golden owl! If you were the correct age on first seeing the 1981 film, you likely remember Bubo fondly. But, as I was not, I found the Owl's dismissive cameo in the uh, 2010 reboot actually quite satisfying. Um, as uh, Perseus and his men are arming themselves for the adventure, a soldier opens a chest in the armory, pulling out the mechanical Owl as a possible aid in their quest. What is this? Just leave it. And perhaps the 2010 films now remembered best for the memes it produced after an early trailer was released featuring uh, Liam Neeson as Zeus, very dramatically declaring, Release the Kraken! But enough with this cinematic nitpicking, let's get to the actual character of Medusa, or the uh, Gorgons in general, and how they were imagined in the ancient world. From a 2nd century compendium of myths by uh, Pseudo Apollodorus. The gorgons' heads were entwined with the horny scales of serpents, and they had big tusks like hogs, bronze hands, and wings of gold on which they flew. Not all these features are constant, but the wings are nearly universal, making uh, gorgons somewhat similar to harpies though uh, some sources imagine the Gorgon quite differently, as in the case of what's uh, probably the earliest depiction of one from uh, the uh, 6th or 7th century BC. It's a relief on a jar in the Louvre depicting her with the horse legs of a centaur. She's mostly recognizable thanks to the figure of Perseus beheading her, 
always a uh, central event in Medusa's narrative. Most uh, commonly, Gorgons were represented as heads rather than full figures, and often dripping gore as if fresh from uh, beheading. Uh, Bernini's famous uh, bronze of Perseus holding up Medusa's head continues this tradition into the Renaissance, featuring so much dangling gore that it looks less like it was uh, swiped off with a sword and more like it was something dug out by the roots. Uh, the uh, gore can even be heavy enough that it's occasionally misread as the beard of a male character, though uh, Gorons are always female. While later representations might show the face as uh, that of a beautiful woman, earlier depictions are distinctly ogre-like, with round, uh, fat heads with flaring nostrils, protruding teeth and tusks and lolling tongues spilling out of a huge, gaping mouth. The eyes are always aggressively bulging, uh, the uh, better to turn you to stone, of course. That there uh, are no female gorgons might be confusing if you think of them as a species that needs to reproduce, but in fact the word gorgon denotes a very limited set of beings, only three, and they're all sisters. The uh, two siblings of Medusa, however, have uh, very uh, small roles in mythology, actually. Medusa is primary, uh, sometimes distinguished as the only one of them who is not immortal, uh, the other sisters are uh, Sento, said in one account to have uh, killed more men than the others, and the uh, other sister, Yorale, is the eldest, uh, and is mentioned in several instances for her uh, anguished howling upon her sister being killed. The Gorgons are usually the offspring of siblings. Um, yes, it's kind of icky like that. They're the, uh, the spawn of uh, Forces and uh, Kito both uh, primeval sea deities embodying the dangers lurking in the waves. The uh, Gorgons themselves, of course, live on dry land and are often described as living within a cave or, according to Virgil, at the entrance to the underworld. Geographically, they're usually placed in some far-flung corner of the world, usually a uh, coastal location. On the farthest side of the Western Ocean. Uh, according to Hesiod, a writer of the 6th century BC, or they might live on an island in what was called the Ethiopian Sea, understood in classical times as the uh, southern half of the Atlantic Ocean to the west. Sometimes they're said to live in Libya, by which the ancient Greeks meant uh, any place west of the Nile and the Maghreb. Now, before we get into the myth of Perseus and the Gorgons, there's an aspect of Medusa's story that wasn't part of the original narrative, but appeared toward the first century, an element which became particularly important in how Medusa is embraced in a more recent culture. Mrs. Carswell will read for you an account of this uh, from the first century Roman writer Ovid from his epic poem Metamorphoses. We'll be changing his Roman names for the characters to Greek equivalents, just to avoid confusion. Medusa's beauty was far famed the jealous hope of many a suitor, and of all her charms, her hair was the loveliest. So I was told by one who claimed to have seen her. She, it said, was violated in Athena's shrine by Poseidon. Zeus's daughter turned away and covered with her shield her virgin's eyes, and then for fitting punishment, transformed the Gorgon's lovely hair to loathsome snakes. It's an ugly bit of victim blaming, but um, 
fair and measured responses by the gods were not common in Greek myths. What sounds like the rape of Medusa in this translation and other tellings is less definitive or by implication consensual. But regardless, any backstory explaining Medusa's serpentine hair inevitably feels quite unjust to us now. Ovid's narrative changed Medusa from little more than a monster to be defeated to a deeply tragic and more interestingly human character, one that for obvious reasons has been embraced as a symbol of a feminist rage and defiance. The notion of her deadly gaze directed against the patriarchy was oddly reinforced when Harryhausen armed his puppet with a bow and arrow, making her uh, quite a popular uh, culture warrior today. So, uh, let's see, a few preliminaries about Perseus. Uh, He was a uh, sort of Hercules before the story of Hercules actually appeared, half human, half divine like Hercules, and a prince of the uh, ancient and uh, real uh, city of Argos in the uh, Peloponnesian Peninsula. His mother was the mortal Danae, who was imprisoned in a bronze chamber by her husband, King Acrisius. But as the roof was open, Zeus was able to pay her a visit in the form of a shower of gold, and from this encounter, Perseus was born. Not exactly pleased with this development, but afraid to uh, put his wife and child to death because of their connection to Zeus, the king locks them in a chest and sets them adrift on the sea. When the uh, chest is found on the shores of the island of Seraphus, uh, one of the uh, Cyclades southeast of the Greek mainland, it's opened by a fisherman who's a brother of the island's king, Polydectus, and the two occupants are welcomed into the court. The uh, king falls in love with Danae, and as Perseus grows to manhood, an animosity develops between the woman's son and the king. Hoping to rid the island of the troublesome son, Polydectus comes up with a ruse. He claims he plans to marry Hippodamia, queen of Pisa, announcing at a feast that his guests are to help him assemble a dowry of horses because, as uh, suggested by Hippodamia's name, uh, taming horses was her passion. According to the account uh, by Pseudo-Apollodorus we've been using, Because he got no horses from Perseus, and because Perseus had said that he would not deny the king even the Gorgon's head, he assigned him the task of fetching that very object. It sounds like the king may have originally only hoped to get rid of him for a limited time he was on his horse hunting excursion, but uh, Perseus uh, accidentally seems to have improved upon his plan, uh, providing us all with a lesson about boastful talk. If you've seen the films, very little thus far will seem familiar, which should come as no surprise, but there are scenes in both the 1981 production and its remake featuring an encounter with figures identified as Stygian witches, three old crones living on the river Styx, who offer Perseus aid in his quest. In the myth, Perseus consults these characters in the beginning, uh, hoping they will help him find the location of the Gorgon and obtain magical tools that will be needed. Though these uh, 
characters are often represented as being somewhat similar to the witches of Macbeth and coming in a triad. They aren't actually identified as such. They're crone-like supernatural beings called the Gravi, or Grey Ones. They're supposedly born gray-haired, uh, according to some, and uh, live in a cave, according to several writers, including Aeschylus, who in his Prometheus Bound also happens to describe them as... Shaped like swans. Which uh, actually doesn't seem typical. Their most commonly recognized distinctive features, one mentioned by Ovid, and who, by the way, only includes two sisters, um, he uh, describes them in a story he has Perseus himself relating. And the hero says of the Grey Ones that they... Were wont to share, in turn, a single eye between them. This, by craft, I got possession of when one essayed to hand it to the other. I put forth my hand and took it as it passed between. Another account has them likewise sharing a uh, single tooth. In some versions, uh, Perseus holds the eye in exchange for information as to where he might obtain further magical aid for his quest. And in other versions, there's no bargaining with the Grai. Uh, they're simply gatekeepers to the Gorgon's world and must be defeated, which... Uh, Perseus does by stealing the eye and tossing it into a lake. The uh, reason the Grai are sought for their knowledge of the Gorgons is their kinship. They are sisters, a, a second triad of uh, female offspring spawned by Phorcys and Quito. Um, Ovid's version of the tale is somewhat shortened as Perseus proceeds directly from his defeat of the Grai to the uh, Gorgon. He uh, Includes a nice bit of uh, cinematic buildup, though. Then far remote, through rocky, pathless crags, over wild hills that bristled with great woods, I thence arrived to where the Gorgon dwelt. Along the way, in fields and by roads, I saw on all sides men and animals like statues turned to flinty stone at sight of Dread Medusa's visage. The longer version of the tale has the Grai pointing Perseus to a further source where he could obtain what's needed to conquer their siblings, the Gorgons. Other than an enumeration of the uh, aids provided, we don't hear much about the encounter, but it's with the Hesperides, nymphs of the sunset, another triad of female beings. The most essential tool when it comes to a beheading, of course, is some sort of blade. In this case, it's a type of sword which seems to be at least partially curved, or curved enough to be called in other translations a sickle, which of course is our preferred translation. It's called a harpa and is sometimes said to have a blade of adamant, a magical stone often equated with diamond. It's either given to Perseus by the nymphs themselves, or it's given by the one who crafted it, Hephaestus, the god of the forge. The nymphs are also said to provide Perseus with a kibisus, uh, which is, uh, seems to be a sort of knapsack in which he was to carry the head once the job's done, along with the helmet of Hades, which renders one invisible, the uh, better for creeping up on the Gorgon, naturally. And then there's Hermes, who's uh, usually said to have lent Perseus his winged sandals so he can make a more speedy journey through the air. If he's uh, not holding the 
bloody head of Medusa. It's the winged sandals by which you can usually recognize Perseus in art. And you may know about one final gift given to Perseus to employ during his mission. That is a bronze shield, polished so as to be reflective. Armed with all of these, he creeps into the Gorgon's cave, finding them, or sometimes finding just Medusa alone, asleep. The shield is mentioned in the narrative from uh, Pseudo Apollodorus. Uh, you have to picture him walking backwards as he enters the cave, keeping... His eyes on the reflection in a bronze shield as he stood over the sleeping Gorgons. And when he saw the image of Medusa, he beheaded her. And then, according to the Dionysica, a uh, 5th century epic poem... Perseus lifted the lifeless token of victory, the snaky sheaf of gorgon hair, relics of the head dripping drops of blood, gently wheezing a half-heard hiss through the severed throats. Perseus fled with flickering wings trembling at the mad hiss of Steno's hairy snakes. Well, not so fast. Uh, of course, the story we've been telling is an amalgam of uh, different narratives. This uh, streamlined version, which puts together pieces that fit and leaves out those that don't, is usually what's meant when we talk about the Perseus-Medusa myth. But this uh, previous passage, just read by Mrs. Carswell, like any cinematic versions you'll see, has left out one particular element of the uh, classical story that it's just too bizarre and too ancient Greek for a lot of versions. It happens immediately after Medusa is beheaded. From the blood that spews from her neck are born two entities. Pegasus, the famous winged horse, and Chrysaur, who makes a few, if any, other appearances in mythology. Um, other than his strange birth, the only other bit we actually know about him is right there in his name, which means... He who has a golden sword. At the time of her execution, Medusa is sometimes described as being pregnant, uh, from her encounter with Poseidon, that is. The fact that Poseidon is a god of horses was understood as an explanation for the strange birth of Pegasus. Though the uh, films omit this surreal scene, they do present another in which uh, giant scorpions are spawned from drops of Medusa's blood upon the ground, something likely inspired by Ovid's reference to something similar. Um, aided by Hermes' sandals, uh, Ovid says, uh, Perseus escapes the Gorgon's lair and launches himself into the skies, but... As he hovered over Libya's sands, the blood drops from the Gorgon's head dripped down. The spattered desert gave these drops life as snakes, smooth snakes of many kinds, and so that land still swarms with deadly serpents to this day. As our hero returns home with the Gorgon's head, there's another encounter, one involving the Titan Atlas, but it's not particularly interesting from a bone and sickle perspective, so we'll Skip forward a bit to a sea monster episode, one which still involves Medusa in a way. It takes place in what the Greeks called Ethiopia, 
which refer generally to either regions of the upper Nile, meaning the southern Nile, if you'll remember, or regions below the Sahara. As Perseus flies over a kingdom ruled by King Cepheus and Queen Cassiopeia, he spots a beautiful naked woman chained to a rock by the sea. It turns out to be the daughter of the royal couple, Andromeda. Her beauty, and presumably her predicament, causes him to land in the kingdom where he's given an explanation for Andromeda's plight. Apparently, Queen Cassiopeia has been boasting that her daughter, or she and her daughter, were uh, equal in beauty to the Nereids, uh, sea nymphs, whose uh, looks apparently meant a lot to Poseidon as he punishes the kingdom either by flooding it or sending the sea monster Cetus to uh, create floods and or devour the uh, populace. Not to be confused with Keto, the sea goddess that birthed the Gorgons, Ketos uh, in the Greek, or Tetos in Latin, is related to our word for whales, cetaceans, and is usually depicted as a huge marine serpent, sometimes with the head of a dolphin, a whale, or even a canine. Desperate to stop the floods or rampages by the monster, the king and queen consult the desert oracle of Ammon, the Egyptian equivalent of Zeus, also recognized by the Greeks. The solution offered demands the sacrifice of their daughter, which brings us up to the moment Perseus experiences his uh, love at first sight and is compelled to slay the beast. We'll um, hear about the uh, hero's battle with uh, Kitos uh, from Ovid in his uh, Metamorphoses, in which he calls the uh, sea monster a dragon, and again we're going to be changing the uh, Roman names to Greek to avoid confusion. As uh, Perseus flies upon the creature, it spies his shadows skipping over the waves and attacks it. And the distraction allows Perseus a window for his attack. Swooping headlong through the void, he attacked the monster's back, and as it roared deep in its shoulders sank his crescent blade. Wounded so sore, the beast now reared upright, high in the air, now dived below the waves, now turned like a fierce boar in frenzy when the pack bays all around. On his swift wings, Perseus eludes the snapping fangs and strikes the parts exposed and plunges his curved sword between its ribs and in its back, all rough with barnacles and where its tapering tail ends the beast belched purple blood, sea spume and blood together. Perseus' plumes were soaked with spray so heavy he could trust his ankle wings no longer. Then he saw a rock, bare in the still water, but awash in rising seas. On this he braced himself, his left hand on a ridge, and with his sword stabbed time and time again the monster's groin. Of course, none of this has anything to do with Medusa, which was something I promised. Uh, The version of this uh, confrontation with the monster is uh, extremely uh, spare compared to uh, Ovid's delightfully gory description. It uh, comes from the uh, epic poem Dionysiaca by Nonos, uh, though its uh, brevity is not particularly epic. 
Perseus killed Iquitos with Gorgon's eye. He turned to stone a leviathan of the deep. If you want a longer version, just watch the movies, I suppose, even though Cetus is a kraken. One interesting footnote to all this, um, there's a rock on the beach of the Israeli city of Jaffa associated with this incident. It's said to be either that to which Andromeda was chained or the uh, petrified remains of Kraken himself. Uh, worth a photo if you happen to visit, I'm sure. However the monster is defeated, Perseus is cheered by the crowds on the shore and Cepheus and Cassiopeia gladly uh, consent when Perseus asks for the hand of Andromeda, uh, despite the fact that she's actually already been promised to another by the name of Phineas. When it comes time for the wedding, however, Phineas is there to make trouble and he's brought a thousand armed men with him. Thankfully, Perseus still has the uh, Gorgon's head on hand and after briefly attempting a fair fight, he pulls out his secret weapon, declaring to all in the words of Ovid, If any friend is present, turn away your face. And he held up the Gorgon's head. Find someone else to fear your miracles, said Thescalus, aiming his lance of doom. And in that pose he stayed a marble statue. The narrative goes on with multiple allies of Phineas attempting an assault on Perseus, and one, for instance, finds... As he lunged, his hand, rigid, moved neither back nor forth. And another that... His voice was cut off in mid-speech. His parted lips seemed to frame words, but never a word could pass. And then another... As he charged the floor, fastened his feet, and there he stayed stock still. A man in armor turned to stone. While his comrade looks on and... Gazing aghast, he took the same stonies caught there and fixed with a blank amazement in his marble face. Finally, as in the movies, the leaders of the two armies are the last standing. Perseus... Thrusts Medusa's head in Phineas's face, his wincing face. Even then he tries to turn his eyes away, but now... His neck is stiff, his moist eyes fixed hard and stony. There, with frightened, pleading face and abject hands, in cringing pose, the marble statue stands. The battle won, the nuptials are concluded, and Perseus heads back to his home island, Seraphos, with his bride and the head he had originally promised the king. And when Polydectus belittles him, saying a man such as he could never obtain the Gorgon's head. I'll give you proof conclusive, Perseus cried. Friends, shield your eyes. And with Medusa's face, he changed the king's face to bloodless stone. It seems like a pretty handy thing to have, a Gorgon's head. But Perseus does not hang onto it forever. If we hear anything more about it in the story, it's that it's presented to Athena, who has guided our hero through his adventure. In um, some uh, hard-to-pin-down poetic manner, the head becomes the thing Athena wears or carries, an emblem of terrifying power known as the Aegis. 
our expression under the aegis of, uh, meaning uh, protected or supported by, would uh, come from this word. But the uh, aegis in its original usage was very much about an offensive rather than a defensive dynamic. Uh, Hesiod describes it as... A thing of terror, crowned on every side with panic all around. And strife was on it, and attack, and chilling flight. And on it, too, the terrible, monstrous gorgon head, a thing of awe and terror, portent of Zeus of the stormy Aegis. Sometimes it sounds as if the kibis, the uh, knapsack containing the head, is worn by the goddess in some form, or that the Aegis is uh, a sort of ornament or wardrobe element bearing uh, tassels like the kibis is said to have. But uh, more commonly, the Aegis came to be understood as a figure on Athena's shield, more a reproduction of the Gorgon's uh, severed head than the head itself. Virgil, in the Aeneid, imagines the Cyclops at the forge of the smith god Hephaestus as he... Busily burnished the aegis Athena wears in her angry moods. A fearsome thing with a surface of gold like scaly snakeskin, and the linked serpents and the gorgon herself upon the goddess's breast, a severed head rolling its eyes. You might be surprised to learn that uh, references to this symbol of power actually precede any recorded narrative of Perseus claiming the head of Medusa. Its uh, first mention uh, comes at least a century before any of the uh, even earliest stories he's been looking at, um, in the uh, 8th century BC, that is, in Homer's Iliad. Across Athena's shoulders, she threw the betasseled, terrible aegis all about, which terror hangs like a garland, and hatred is there, and battle strength, and heart-freezing onslaught, and thereon is set the head of the grim, gigantic Gorgon, a thing of fear and horror, portent of Zeus of the Aegis. While the Aegis is a mythical concept, representations of Gorgon heads were used in real life by rulers in Greece to represent their power and divine protection. Outside its mythic context, this emblem is known as the Gorgonian, and it was not only used by the ruling class to symbolize power, but also, and more universally perhaps, as a means of warding off evil. It appeared on the shields, uh, breastplates, and weapons of soldiers, on coins and jewelry, pottery, and over gates and doors, and in wall and floor mosaics, and on tombstones, and on ovens and kilns. In this way, the Gorgonian, similar to other frightful faces, uses apotropaic charms. The black face of Kali, or the gaping teethy Kitimurka in India, or in European architecture, the um, grotesques or chimeras of uh, medieval cathedrals. Or, more literally, like uh, the Perseus story, the display of headhunting trophies to intimidate enemies, both spiritual and human. And speaking of rotting human heads, as I tend to do. I wanted to mention as we wrap up an interesting theory put forward by Stephen Wilk in his book Medusa Solving the Mystery of the Gorgon. The uh, Gorgonian's traditional bulging eyes and lolling tongue he links with our existential terror of death and its most literal emblem, 
the corpse, especially the recent corpse that has begun to swell as the gases of decomposition push its eyes forward in their sockets and tongue from its mouth. It's an interesting idea. I didn't say it would be a pleasant one. No one is safe from us, slithery serpents of doom. Devil woman takes you into a realm seldom open to human eyes. The cave of the mystical rituals of the Brotherhood of Satan will strip your nerves screamingly raw. To keep your mind from snapping, you have to keep telling yourself it's only a movie. Well, we're not quite done. I wanted to leave with a couple more Medusa films. They're rather obscure, or actually very obscure, as they're from the Philippines. And they're not quite about Medusa, but rather another individual with a head full of snakes. Her name is Manda, and according to the 1970 poster for the film, she's... Satan's sinister sister. She also goes by Devil Woman, as you've heard. The film has a number of titles, usually Devil Woman, but also Manda, or Manda the Snake Girl. And when I say she has a head full of snakes, I mean it. The actress appears to be wearing an actual pile of live, writhing snakes atop her head throughout a number of scenes, that is, when her head isn't covered by a scarf. I'm, I'm not sure how they stay put, but it suggests to me a lack of uh, any organization similar to the SBCA in that country. Anyway, devil, snake, woman, girl, Manda seems to have been born that way, which apparently bothers her, but she did inherit a supernatural control over snakes also. Here's the uh, plot in a nutshell. So you're the one that terrorized the whole village. You. You and your snakes. They killed my parents. I lived miserably up to now, just to let them know. Killings must be paid for. The only way to uh, combat snakes, according to this film, which happens to be a uh, Filipino Hong Kong co production, is uh, martial arts. So there's quite a lot of that in the film. I suppose all this might sound strange to you, but. Nothing you've experienced will ever be as strange as the film's 1973 sequel, Bruca, Queen of Evil. Amanda's back with her snake wig in this one, but there's also Bruca, her grandmother, who lives in a cave and is represented by the uh, head of an actress in an enormous gray fright wig attached to the uh, awkwardly puppeteered body of a snake. Uh, but that's only the beginning. Uh, from an ad for the film created for its uh, American drive-in release. Black Belt versus Black Magic. See the terrifying Lady of Snakes. See a Kung Fu master battle an army of savage midgets. See deadly flying Batman. See the unstoppable men of stone. Well, they're not mentioning the walking trees that fight against the uh, martial artists in a sort of uh, bargain basement Sid and Marty Croft fever dream. And there's also a virgin sacrifice, a hunchbacked assistant, and an actor wearing some sort of oversized mask that's possibly supposed to look like a horse head, but might also be a dog or an alligator, I'm not sure. 
And of course there are snakes. Lots and lots and lots of snakes. No one is safe from her slithery serpents of doom. Devil woman! Don't cross her path unless you're tired of living in cursed color. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or even better, to leave a review wherever you listen. Uh, every week I mention the 100 plus hours that goes into each episode and how untenable it is to keep the show going without the support we have from patrons. I'm not going to uh, enumerate all the rewards and options available to support us uh, as I usually do. You can find our Patreon link and all the social media links by Googling Bone and Sickle. Um, Instead, I wanted to showcase a few of our existing supporters whom I get to know through their comments on my uh, Patreon posts and messages I get, of course. All this gives me little nudges toward this or that topic for future shows, so it's all very helpful. Um, I recently posted uh, asking uh, existing subscribers for a little feedback and thought I'd share some of this with listeners so you can uh, know a bit about the uh, company you keep here every time you listen. I'll be doing this with the new subscribers as they sign up in future also. I always hear that a lot of uh, creative types listen to the show while they work and heard from Ruth O'Leary that she's... A textile artist. And I listen to blogs while making things, even if it's not visible on the surface. I mostly use floral designs. Some of the spirit of B&S will have been stitched into my work. And our supporter Kimmy Mass uh, listens while... Making pottery or painting. Jessica Myers-White is a musician studying early music and specializing in the uh, viola da gamba, a uh, 16th century forerunner of the cello. Uh, she's... Also a huge fan of Hammer films and have pictures of Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, and Christopher Lee in my office. Forrest Aguirre is a uh, writer in Wisconsin who finds inspiration for his craft in the show and uses Bowden Sickle as... A Baedeker of weird history. Stella B. loves the... Weirder bits of history that influences us to this day. Joseph Krall uh, hears the show as a voice out of the past, one which prompted him to ask his grandmother-in-law, Have you ever attended a spook show? A question she has not been asked in a long, long time. I wish I'd heard the answer on that one. Uh, Sean Sutherland is a Texas patron I previously bonded with over research into a particular California cult and reports that our intersection of horror and folklore is a kind of sweet spot for him. Uh, Eric R. likes the show's focus, saying, It's like we know a guy at the museum who lets us blow past all the 18th century porcelain straight down to the mummies in the basement. He knows what's in our little dark hearts. I'm afraid I do. And uh, let's see, Peter Aller is a uh, British expat living in the U.S., missing the traditions of his home in Staffordshire, and listens to the show to... Explore quaint village traditions, particularly that of the Green Man. And I believe he's created his own Green Man pub on these shores, uh, as well as a backyard hinge, I believe. Uh, Nigel Bundy is another British supporter who came to the show through an interest in ghosts. He's a longtime member of two venerable organizations exploring those topics, the uh, Society of Psychical Research, founded in 1882, and London's Ghost Club, founded all the way back in 1862. Uh, Hannah, from the northeast of England, listens while she works. Uh, she's... A jeweler, and I work with found objects, including hand-stamped 18th-century pennies found by metal detectorists, 
crudely engraved convict tokens, and bent Elizabethan silver sixpences. Hannah was also responsible for our toad magic episode as she suggested the topic after working in her garden, which apparently is overrun by toads. And we have at least one supporter in Iceland, uh, Rabsuna Ross, who says she listens while she paints and draws and finds this show. Helps my spare time research on obscure topics. And I should also thank Brett Virginia Kensington, who just subscribed as I was putting this all together. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects in writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>